Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. It's been 10 years since Democratic Congresswoman Gabby Giffords survived an assassination attempt that claimed the lives of six people, including a nine-year-old girl. Many political leaders claimed it was time to change the rhetoric, but they didn't. In 2017, Republican Rep Steve Scalise was gravely injured, along with three others, after a shooting prompted by political tension. Many called for a change in rhetoric and tone then. Instead, thousands descended on Charlottesville a month later for the Unite the Right rally. Heather Heyer was killed and many others injured. Then there was Pittsburgh, Poway, California, El Paso, Cincinnati, Louisville, and countless other attacks driven by ignorance and hate. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Last week, five people died in a violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, again stoked by dangerous rhetoric, misinformation, and racism. Coming up, we'll dig deeper into the idea that the storming of the U.S. Capitol was about maintaining privilege in America. But first, two major disruptions. One of them we just mentioned. The other was about two highly contentious runoff elections in Georgia, narrowly won by two Democratic candidates who made history. Joining us now to talk about both of these events is Dr. Pearl Dow, the Asa Griggs Kamler Professor of Political Science and African American Studies at Emory University. Dr. Christina Greer is Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University. And Dr. Michael Fontroy is Associate Professor of Political Science at Howard University. Professors, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It is great to have all of you here. So everything that's been happening in American politics has, for some people, disrupted the trust that they had in American democracy. And for others, it was sort of a wake-up call to the fragility of that system that the three of you have been talking about for so long. So I want us to talk about that sort of dual reality, and then where do we go from there? So Dr. Dow, I want to start with you, Pearl, because you are a Georgia native. You have returned to your home state to teach and to live. And a lot of people were surprised by those Senate election outcomes that you had Raphael Warnock win, you had John Ossoff win, and people were asking, how did it happen? So what was the formula in Georgia to have those two wins? Well, it was exciting because as being a native and particularly coming from Savannah, Georgia, it was quite sweet in the sense that this has been a long challenge for Democratic voters and particularly Black voters to vote for who they want and the person to win. Um, And I think one of the things that we have to talk about in this conversation is in the South, the how racial gerrymandering has made the South appear red. Georgia has long been a state that should have been blue years ago, but because of this gerrymandering that really began in the 90s following the Miller versus um, Johnson case in 95, areas such as Savannah 
every area with the exception of the Atlanta metro area really had challenges in voting um, and not just only voting, but electing people that they desired. Um, even if they were white Democrats, it just was not going to happen for the Congress or the state legislature. So I think that itself suppressed voter turnout over the years. Um, particularly if we look at some of the local races, um, we can see that many of these local municipalities have had turnouts for mayoral elections less than 20, 15%. And I think that really was one of the, that was impacted by what was happening where people were like, why should I turn out? I cannot vote, I cannot select the person I want. Um, and so I think that's a lesson learned. But I think one of the things about the formula is the fact that um, when we look at, and we talk about the women on the ground that have been doing this work for several years, um, I think we have to look at what they actually did. And one of the things that I think they did was they, they filled in the gap. So historically people just go out and register people to vote. And then a few weeks before the election, you try to get them to show up. They filled in the gap with particularly voter education. And really the piece that I think is most important is one of the major ways that you can easily suppress a vote is to misinform people about when and where to vote. And one of the things that I saw was that these groups were really key in helping people know when the election was, where to go and what to expect. And they did this in very strategic ways. So for example, Black Voter Matters, they provided grants to organizations to post billboards throughout the Atlanta metro area that just said vote and the date and information about how to get more, more information about where to go. That was critical. And I think in this election, I don't think I knew a Georgian that did not know it was election day. Five years ago, 10 years ago, that would not have been the case. So I think they were able to very be very strategic about filling those gaps, um, being strategic in a pandemic, taking advantage of technology, um, taking advantage and, and really collaborating with organizations and people that were already in communities doing the work. Christina, the formula sounds so simple. Focus on people, focus on relationships. Don't think that you can just helicopter into an area and tell people what they need, but really invest in that local talent. And although it sounds really simple, we still know that African-Americans, people of color broadly, are so underrepresented, particularly in statewide office, but at every level of government. Is this a formula that you think can work outside of Georgia? And if so, what are the investments we need to make now for that to happen? I, you know, Kalila, I, I definitely think it's a formula that could work. I think the Democrats have dropped the ball quite significantly over the years. So we know that Fair Fight Action, that Stacey Abrams organization, was working in the past few years in places like Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, all of those states we know uh, had substantive Democratic turnout, and many of them went blue this past presidential election. But I think Pearl says something that's really important about racial gerrymandering. And Kalila, if you remember, when we were at gerrymandering camp at Tufts University a few years ago, we spoke extensively about the mathematical ways that you can increase or decrease political power. And so I have always scratched my head in places like Louisiana, Alabama, 
Mississippi, where percentage-wise, they have some of the largest Black populations of the entire union, yet and still, there seems to be zero Democratic representation, even though the vast majority, well over 90% of Black people in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi identify as Democrats. But the way the districts are drawn in that state significantly decrease Black political power and representation. So if we can, and we have to remember, this is a long-term game. So if we can invest in Southern states, we've already seen there's a blue wall on the West Coast in California, Oregon, and Washington. We're now starting to see the Sunbelt region in New Mexico and Arizona is turning purplish blue if we invest and, and work with our Latinx partners. And in the South, it is possible. If we can sort of shore up Florida, shore up Georgia, I don't understand why Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama are off the table. It just takes investment and some vision to understand how racial gerrymandering that, that Pearl mentioned uh, works specifically against not just Democrats, but Black people in particular. We've seen it in North Carolina. We've seen it work in North Carolina when there's investment there, but it has to be sustained effort so that we can keep the states once we get them. Because Georgia you know, had a great win in 2020 and early 2021. There's no guarantee that this purple state that leaned blue this time will stay that way because Ossoff and Warnock didn't win by 10, 15 percentage points. They, they won over the line, but that was major effort and a lot of money, time, energy, blood, sweat, and tears that went into that win. And so we have to keep that full court press in order to make sure that this is a sustained effort and these purplish states turn blue and stay blue. So you might be a nerd if your idea of a fun summer camp is to go <laughs> learn about gerrymandering. And yet we were there for a week and it was we were there for fascinating. The best. It was wonderful. And it, it brings together all of the structural pieces of this question that I think many people don't pay attention to. It's more than just what you want as an individual or the choice you make. It's often the choices that are available to you. And so I wanna bring you in here, Michael, because you are an expert on representation and the structural barriers to that. And so even with the election of these two new senators from Georgia, the sort of history-making nature of that, the question then becomes, what difference does it make? Substantively, will it have an impact on what happens in the Senate or the possibility of getting some sort of policy change that can say to voters, this is why your investment is worth it, whether it is the investment of your vote, your time and your talent, or the commitment of a donation. So what do you see in terms of that notion of substantive representation that can come out of what we've seen in Georgia? So I love the question, and I'm gonna to get to it in a second, I promise. But I wanna co-sign and underline what Dr. Dow and Dr. Greer said, because I, you know, I'm not even sure you, even, you need all of the states that we've talked about, although that would be great, but you can put a lock on North Carolina with just a little extra work that hasn't been done recently. We, you know, your home state of Virginia, for example, is very different in 2021 than it was just 15 years ago. It's amazing what's happened in Virginia. And North Carolina is right on the precipice. And I would be, and I would suggest, and I'm gonna confirm, uh, confirm some bias here, I would suggest that all of these states that have significant numbers and, and, and uh, are historically black colleges and universities are really at the epicenter of this potential change. The state of North Carolina 
changed its ID rules specifically to outlaw and make it impossible for students at North Carolina Central University and North Carolina A&T and all of the other public HBCUs in the state from being able to use their state-issued student IDs. But that's a piece to... that's a piece that the average person outside of that area is not attuned to. So when we hear about all of this concern about electoral integrity and protecting the ability to vote, what we know is that in North Carolina, these provisions were created intentionally to keep young black people from voting. It's what we saw in Texas to box out Prairie View A&M. And we're seeing it in a way that does not make the nightly news or the the broader public discussion. And, and, And that is a form of suppression in terms of what difference it makes. Uh, in the Senate in terms of public policy, you know, representation matters. Uh, this is critical because it, it, it enables one group to wrest control of the schedule on which public policies will be debated and voted on from another group. And so minimally it matters because the organization of Congress uh, helps lead to uh, the issues that are discussed and debated and and the starting point from that negotiation becomes one perspective as opposed to another. Long-term, it will only matter if there are significant uh, long-term changes and expansion in majorities uh, in both chambers. Uh, The the reality is a 50-50 Senate really can't do very much in either direction, you know, Uh, in a closely contested House has limits on what it could do. Although House Rules Committee uh, under Democratic control versus Republican control really does have a lot to say with how things get done. So as I think about what the next year or two will look like, you know, the triage that has to be done on, on democracy wasn't in my initial calculus, but you know, it looks like the next year or so is gonna be dominated by restoring faith in, in, in democracy and responding to COVID-19, which crowds out space for a lot of other things. Michael Fontroy is Associate Professor of Political Science at Howard University. After the break, we'll try to make some sense of last week's violent insurrection with Professor Fontroy and Pearl Dow, Political Science Professor at Emory University, and Christina Greer, Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Let's continue our conversation with Pearl Dow, Asa Griggs-Candler Professor of Political Science and African-American Studies at Emory University. Christina Greer is Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University. And Michael Fontroy, Associate Professor of Political Science at Howard University. On the heels of the Democratic win in Georgia, the U.S. Capitol, known as the People's House, was overtaken by violent protesters attempting to stop the electoral vote certification. As we've had time to digest more of the footage and learn more about the people involved, it's become clear that the Capitol insurrection could have been even more deadly. I asked Dr. Dow if she was surprised. I, I think I was surprised in ways I didn't think I would be surprised because you're really watching this thing. It was almost like slow motion. Like, am I really watching what I think I'm watching? 
And especially when you're familiar with the with the capital and the perimeter of the capital, and you're like, oh, they're not going to get that far. And then you see them, you're like, wait a minute, they're right in front of the steps. And for those of us that are familiar with that area, you know how difficult it is to get to that part of the capital. Capitol Police tend to be very aggressive about where you're supposed to be and jaywalking and all of that. You know, those of us that live there, we have bad experiences with that. Um, but I think what is shocking, even now, I am still processing the fact that we possibly could have seen, and someone posted this on Twitter, a mass assassination. And I think that's, I'm still processing what could have been. It's just, it's mind boggling, but then it's not surprising when you understand what they feel is at stake, right? That their entire existence is under attack. Everything about this society, everything about white supremacist structure and ideology says from the time that they are born that everything is about them. And so when we hear people say, well, you know, they feel they're left behind or they feel, no, what they feel is that they have not been able to use their whiteness to their benefit and they want to blame somebody for it. That is what is happening. If their whiteness has not benefited them in the way that they were told it was supposed to. And so whose fault is that? So it's not just now we have these just black people. It is the elites on the East Coast. It's the Nancy Pelosi's, it's the AOC's. It's, it is the police that they have argued that they are in favor of. And so I think we have to understand that this is deeply, deeply entrenched in everything in society, but that mindset that I am grieved is really about the fact that they are upset that their lives are not the way white whiteness and white supremacy has told them it's, it's supposed to be. But it's also about where that blame is placed, exactly. right? Exactly. So after Barack Obama's election in 2008, the, the rise of the Tea Party in 2009, 2010, people said it's about economic anxiety. It's just this fear of losing one's economic position. But a lot of folks lost their jobs in 2020 because of the pandemic, and they didn't show up with nooses and zip ties to express the concern that their small business was shutting down. Professor Greer, what's at stake then? If people feel that they are, are, are so fragile now and are so at risk that they are willing to take to the US Capitol to communicate that, that is something that is much greater than economic angst and is certainly much bigger than just Donald Trump as president. There is a, a base there that didn't appear because he was elected and many people fear won't just go away once he's out of office. Oh, it won't go away once he's out of office. We still had well over 70 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump in a re-election and said, yes, I want more of this. I want more of this anti-Muslim rhetoric. I want more of this white nationalist dog barking. I want, you know, more children in cages. I want uh, stealing of native lands and, you know, environmental atrocities. So we're in this moment where I've said time and time again, I don't think that enough white people understand the capacity of white people. This constant rhetoric of this isn't us. Yes, it is. It's always been us. This is a country that's founded on white supremacy and anti-Black racism. Throw in patriarchy and capitalism too. But white supremacy and anti-Black racism are the foundation of this nation. And we've never had a real substantive conversation about it. 
And I used to think that the South African tribunals were a waste of time, the truth and reconciliation tribunals. I was like, what is the point of that? Someone's like, okay, I'm sorry. And then what? But now I've realized actually, we do need to have that. We do need to have people come in front of their, their community, their, their state, their, their representatives and say, this is what I did and it was wrong. But these people still don't recognize what they did when they're wrong because at, at once they are the victim and the hero of their own story. They don't have because the immigrants took it, black folks took it. Well, you had a 400 year head start of zero competition. I don't know what to tell you, right? This is where we are right now. And yes, there are women at your job. Yes, there are people of color at your job. And you were angry about it because this isn't the promise that you were, that you were given for this nation. But the nation doesn't owe you more. And the, the, the crux of the real issue is that as we ask for equality, as we ask just to be recognized as citizens, people feel like that's taking something away from them. And as LBJ told us, you know, if you can convince the poorest white man that he's better than the Negro, you can pick his pockets all day long, right? And so we have a myriad of, of folks actually on the ball, right? We have the poor folks that are just like, yeah, it's the immigrants, it's the black people, it's the women, you can run down the list. But then you have upper middle-class white folks. These are people who took time off their jobs. They flew on airplanes, they stayed in hotels. They actually have the capital. So they're willing to hide behind this sort of hillbilly narrative of whiteness, but they're the ones actually who are upholding it quite well. They are educated. They are, they are well-resourced. They're the ones who actually vote. It brings me to this question, Michael, based on everything that we've just talked about, is this idea of safety and, you know, the actions or inaction of law enforcement on that day. We now know that five people lost their lives in that insurrection, including a member of the Capitol Police Force who was beaten to death by protesters who likely a few months ago were the ones showing up at rallies saying, Blue Lives Matter. We also know, and I wanna lift his name, of Officer Eugene Goodman, a black Capitol Police officer who risked his life in order to divert those insurrectionists so that it wouldn't be that mass casualty, mass assassination um, effort that we saw. And in that context, out of the, the big conversation has been, why didn't the mayor of DC do more? If she knew this was coming, she had this intel from NYPD, the blame has been placed on her. But your work talks about home rule for decades. You've been on this for decades of why those structures matter for the ability of the people of D.C. to protect themselves for themselves in this midst. Talk to our listeners then about why that issue of home rule and statehood is relevant here. So um, people should know that Washington, D.C. is one of the most heavily policed cities in the world. and there are very clear areas of jurisdiction. The Capitol Police do not report to the mayor or the police chief. They are a separate federalized police force with their own chief, their own rules and procedures, their own strategies, their own responsibilities. So everyone listening should know that what happened at the Capitol in terms of the lack of preparedness for the Capitol Police has nothing to do with the, the city of Washington. Although, of course, it impacts the city of Washington. And I would remind everybody that to the extent that there were any uh, uh, leaders speaking before cameras trying to explain what was going on and, and how to respond, it was the mayor of Washington, D.C. and the chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. 
So uh, it, it is a really interesting case study in, in sort of jurisdictional behavior that allows us to talk a little more about our unique position here in DC vis-a-vis the federal government and the rest of the country com- compared to what goes on in states all around the country. So we are a federal district. We do not have all of the same rights and privileges uh, of the states around the country, although we do have all of the same responsibilities uh, as a jurisdiction. Uh, the, the, the DC statehood movement is trying to say to the country that you know we have 725,000 residents, more than three states in the union. We have an annual budget in excess of more than state, 10 states in the union. We have substantial responsibilities to help provide support to the uh, functions of the federal government. And yet we have no representation in the US Senate. Uh, we don't have any say in who gets to be appointed ambassador or secretary of a particular department or agency. Uh, and uh, we have one representative in Congress who is not vested with all of the uh, privileges that come along with uh, being a member of the House of Representatives. And so those of us who live in DC live with a disadvantage. We live with a watered down version of democracy. And if there's anything that comes out of this for us is that that issue is lifted to a higher level of national consciousness. There's so many angles to what happens next and how we move forward as a country. But the thing that I think I want our listeners to sort of end with here, all four of us spend a lot of time with young people on college campuses every day, even if that is virtually. And so I'll just throw it out to all three of you. What is the conversation that we need to have with young people, particularly young people whose views may be different or who may be trying to figure out their way What's the conversation that you're preparing to have and how are you preparing to address some of these things in your classes? So any of you want to jump in? Well, I teach intro to politics every semester and I really wanna check in with them and sort of gauge where they are in understanding the historical context of this point. Why is it that as an American, not just a black American, but an American, I see that Confederate flag in the Capitol And I I say, not only is that person carrying that flag treasonous, anyone who is next to him is treasonous, the president who has not denounced him is treasonous, the party that uplifts this is treasonous. What does that even mean to be treasonous? What does 1865 mean to you? A, A lot of students don't fully understand how this is directly connected to the Civil War or the Civil Rights Movement. So really just trying to see where they are and understanding these visuals are powerful. And so I think I'll start with some of the pictures to try and detangle some of this. Why are these people so angry? Angry from what? You know, many of them have pensions. Many of them have had solid jobs. They've gone to good public schools. Uh, They've gotten everything that America has promised. So where is the bile coming from? And where does it go? Especially when we have uh, far too many elected officials on local, state, national level saying, well, everyone's angry. Not in the same ways and and not how it's displayed. And the response to that anger is also very different historically and in the contemporary. Professor Dow, what about you? What, what's the conversation you'll have with your students? Well, I'm teaching um, African-American women in politics. And so um, most of the times when you teach that class or even in my other courses, when you, when you start talking about 
um, black women, the question typically is why are black women functioning, thinking, being different than white women? That's usually the question. What my approach is and has been is really helping them connect the dots. Um, but then I, I do a lot of history. I really have to really go back to the beginning. And, and a lot of times in, in classes, there will be days that I will stay on something. I'm like, I've got to stay here. I cannot move. And they're like, we talked about this last week. You didn't get it last week. But then I also have to do some emotional check-in too, because this is traumatizing, right? This has really blown up their their thoughts about what America is, what it's not, who they are. But I think what I what I am excited about with these students, this age group, is that I think they have more of a deep intention of wanting to do. Um, so I, I think I, I want to spend some time in trying to help shape shape a purposeful engagement and help them figure out and navigate um, how to do what's next. Dr. Fontroy, you are at Howard University, which is one of the premier institutions of higher learning, historically black colleges and universities in this country, and also the alma mater, not just to you and Dr. Dow uh, and Vice President-elect Harris. What's the convo that you'll have with your students? Well, first off, there are going to be a lot of conversations because, you know, I teach, I teach a course on the presidency to undergrads every spring. My guess is that this group is going to need some, some sort of care and feeding on the fundamentals. As, as Dr. Dow mentioned earlier, you know, typical 18, 19, 20 year old undergrads, you know, of course, just don't have the historical context. So we were talking earlier about uh, when Dr. Greer was talking about the Confederate flag in the Capitol and my blood boils when, when all of that, when I see that. But as I think about the footage that we've seen on the news the last few days, I think for current young people, that will be what the images of Bloody Sunday were for 18, 19, 20-year-olds in 1965, right? I think, you know, I'm going to have to listen to, and, and be responsive to their questions in a way that provides the context that they need. As, as we all know, we, we, we deal with people who are at one time acknowledging that they don't know a lot and need help. But on the other side, they're very confident that they know all they need to know. <laughs> if you understand, they, they think they know. And so they need to be corrected on that too. So I, I'm going to be listening and then following wherever the questions take us. Dr. Pearl K. Dow is the Asa Griggs Candler Professor of Political Science and African-American Studies at Emory University. Dr. Christina Greer is Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University. And Dr. Michael Fontroy is Associate Professor of Political Science at Howard University. I want to thank all three of you for joining us. But even more importantly, thank you for the work that you're doing to protect democracy, and to really invest in our young people. So thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah. See you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, we'll learn about what storming the U.S. Capitol had to do with maintaining white supremacy in America. And we'll talk about where we go from here. This is Disrupted. We'll be back after the break. 
Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. There are communities that have had to bear the brunt of America confronting, white Americans confronting the danger of their innocence. And it happens every generation. So somehow we have to kind of, oh my God, is this who we are? That was Princeton professor Eddie Claw Jr. speaking on MSNBC in 2019. He was responding to a mass shooting by a white supremacist that killed 22 people in El Paso, Texas. And now here we are again in 2021, still having a conversation about violence, white supremacy, and America. Our next guest is Dr. Hakeem Jefferson, assistant professor of political science at Stanford University. He recently wrote an article for 538 called Storming the U.S. Capitol was about maintaining white power in America. Professor Jefferson, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I want to jump right into this piece because with so much happening in the country right now, there are all of these efforts to try to make sense of what happened or uh, the surprise that some people have. And there's a quote in your article that says, this is like so much of American politics about race, racism, and white American stubborn commitment to white dominance, no matter the cost or the consequence. Put that into context for our listeners who will say, look, it's not about all of that. It's just about an election and concerns about election integrity. I'm so glad that's where we're starting. Uh, It's it's for me uh, an articulation of a perspective that that I have uh, and that I know that you you might share as well, which is that. uh, As I say to students, race is the central organizing feature of American politics and nothing else comes close. Uh, there, there are often efforts to sort of, you know, sugarcoat it or to put a different kind of cover on it or to say that it's about something like election integrity. Uh, but for those who've been paying attention, the president and, and his team have not gone after the votes in every jurisdiction, even in states that the president lost. Uh, these have often been jurisdictions that have uh, high level or high density of, of, of minority voters. They're in context where the president and his team recognize that they can uh, convincingly uh, tell their base based on stereotypes of, of African-Americans and, and the stereotyped nature of political corruption, uh, that, that these are jurisdictions where uh, the president has been illegitimately uh, removed from power. Uh, And so those of us who study race uh, and American politics are used to the various covers that people put on it, the gloss or the shine. Uh, But all of this is rooted in a dark history of racism in the U.S. And so in this piece, what I wanted to highlight once more is that if we're trying to make sense of why a bunch of white folk travel from across the country to the Capitol and engaged in this violent behavior, Right. We have to reckon with the deep investment and whiteness and white supremacy and white power. And I'm sure we'll get to this in the conversation, but you can't have looked at anything that's happened over the past decade uh, in American politics, uh, in particular, the ascendance of, of, of Donald Trump to the White House and not see that it is at least in part based on all the scholarship we have based at least in part on white people's concern about a loss of status. And so that's where 
that's where the line in the piece and the piece more broadly uh, stems from. Let's talk about that buildup, because one of the things that I think is particularly strong about your piece is the nuance and the context that you build mm-hmm. into this to say that this did not happen overnight, that this is an accumulation. We can go back to the birtherism claims when Barack Obama was running for president and that Donald Trump mm-hmm. and his enablers were saying, prove to us that you are an American mm-hmm. citizen and then worthy of this. And then of course there's Charlottesville in 2017. There's so many other examples. And yet, In November, the American people elected its first woman of color to be vice president Mm -hmm. of the United States. What do you say to people who say, look, it can't be all racist and all racism if we are still able to have a Kamala Harris elected as vice president and now a Raphael Warnock elected as senator of Georgia? I I think I I speak honestly with these folk and I say to them what what I have to internalize in my own reckoning with American politics. Uh, I would say to them that American politics is messy and it's complicated and that you see at the same time a violent uprising in D.C. at the Capitol happening just as Georgians had elected uh, to the Senate a Raphael Warnock, a black man who preaches at Dr. King's church and a Jewish man in, uh, in Ossoff. And so American politics is messy and it's complicated, but we ought not, we ought not look to one event, uh, the ascendance of a woman of color, for example, to the highest office uh, uh, in the land that a woman of color has been, been appointed to. Uh, we can't look at that and say that that removes, right, all of the legacies of racism and racial violence that are also a part of the American story. We can have both of these things be true that there is a segment of the country that has moved, it appears, in a more racially progressive direction, right? And, and we still need to dig in on that a little bit more to know the sincerity of it, et cetera. But it, it appears to any of us paying attention that there's a segment of the country uh, that is not just okay with a Kamala Harris or Barack Obama, but they're excited by it. They're enthusiastic about it. They think it reflects some progressive move in the country uh, that they are appreciative of. But at the same time, uh, there is this other er undercurrent in American politics, that there is a sizable share of the citizenry that is really concerned about what all of this progress means for their racial group. And so all of this is happening simultaneously. And so for your listeners who are confused by it all, join the crowd, but, but I think we have to deal with the, the messiness of American politics and the longstanding legacy of race, racism, and white power and white supremacy uh, to understand at least the darker parts of, of what we're observing. You know, one of the things that we learn very early on as graduate students in political science, but particularly American Mm -hmm. politics, is that mobilization breeds counter mobilization. That's right. Yes. So when you advertise, as you said, the browning of America or the sort of electoral mobilization strategies, it makes some people say, wait a minute, what about me? What about people like me? However, I define that. And in your piece, you mentioned this 
seminal essay from Herbert Bloomer that was written in 1958 and is just as relevant today as it was when it was written. And it's called Race Prejudice as a Sense of Group Position. Talk to us about how the tenets of that article help explain this concern or fear that people have about losing ground, that if one group now has political voice, that it can threaten to shake the entire structure of power, particularly when we link that power to race. This piece is one that you're introduced to uh, very early on, and it's one that is so shape the way that I think about race uh, and race prejudice in the U.S. And Bloomer is coming to thinking about race prejudice uh, at a period when, when some folks are talking about a kind of psychological feeling of racial prejudice, sort of birthed just out of a kind of socialization or about a bad feeling. I just don't like these people. And, and, and what Bloomer's piece uh, reminds us of and, and what scholarship that builds on this work has done, done since is to, is to say that we can make sense of white people's prejudice by understanding the desire to hold on to power, uh, the reaction uh, to, to, and I want to, I want to get this, I want to get this language right because I think it's so, it's so important. And, and if you'll indulge me, there are just four quick pillars of this idea. Uh, and, and, and Bloomer writes about these four, four basic types of feeling, and I'll go through them quickly here. But there's this feeling of superiority, check. Uh, a feeling that the subordinate race is intrinsically different and alien. These people aren't like me, check. A feeling of proprietary claim to certain areas of privilege and advantage, a kind of entitlement to power, check. Uh, and, and then lastly, a fear and suspicion, and this one's really important, a fear and suspicion that the subordinate race harbors designs on the prerogatives of the dominant race. And that's all fancy academic speak, but what Bloomer's saying in this last and fourth point is that white folks not only feel the sense of entitlement, they think of these groups as being different, they have this sense that on the heels of their power are these racial and ethnic minorities who through institutions, who through culture is, is heightening the precarity of white people's power. And we can't understand the ascendance of Donald Trump or the mob violence like what we saw in DC, these groups harboring designs on the prerogative of the dominant race. And so, Bloomer's theory is thinking about group position and concerns about group position. And, and for listeners, it's important that we all are concerned about status and status loss, but it manifests differently uh, when that concern is located among members of a dominant group that, that actually wields a great deal of societal power versus uh, these concerns about status among traditionally oppressed groups. We should worry that is a great deal when members of a dominant group that still wield so much societal power perceives that they're losing status and losing power. And that gives rise to the kinds of things that we've seen in recent American history and across the long stretch of American history, in fact. You know, you've said it before, and I think it bears repeating, American politics is messy. It's uncomfortable. It's not yes. linear. And it, it's That's one right. of the things that 
frustrates my students to no end, particularly those who will take my intro to politics course who aren't poli-sci majors, because they want to know, here's the right answer, this happens, and then this other thing responds. Mm -hmm. And it's not that comfortable. And when we think about that, we think about that reality that I think sometimes some of us take for granted because we know this, this life and we've experienced it. I always think about what comes next and what is the power that we all as, as everyday people can claim in order to move things forward. Um, and in thinking about that, in his remarks, President-elect Biden said, the scenes of chaos at the Capitol do not reflect a true America, do not represent who we are. And many people bristled at that because they watched what happened at the Capitol and they had memories of what happened when schools try to integrate in the South. Or as you mentioned, Charlottesville and what happened when people said, we will not be replaced. When we think about this disruption or disruptions that we've experienced, what do we need to do, Professor, to move forward? I, I don't have the answer to that question, so I'll, I'll answer it in a way that, uh, that reflects the, the uncertainty that I have. Uh, because I think in this moment, as, I, as I've said online and elsewhere, we all need to tell the truth, both about what we know and about what we don't know. I too bristle at these claims that this is not who we are. I mean, it is in fact exactly who we are and who we've been. Uh, and without any disruption and a positive dimension, it's, it's going to be who we are moving into the future. Uh, I don't think that we can discount, however, the important role of political elites in this story. Uh, that if we are to sort of turn down the temperature, responsible members of the elite class have to speak clearly and honestly and condemning the kind of violence that we saw in DC. Uh, we've got to push for Republicans to stop using this language of racial grievance uh, in their campaigning. We've got to move swiftly and thinking about ways to reform the institutional designs that allow for this kind of extreme politics. Uh, Republicans who don't have to worry about winning by a majority, uh, which we would come to expect in something like a democracy. Uh, when Republicans don't have to worry because of gerrymandering, because of other aspects of our politics that allows uh, a, a minority party uh, to win the presidency, even as they don't win the popular vote. It allows the Republican Party to continue a kind of language that feeds to their base supporters because they don't have to worry about, uh, about convincing a broader base of supporters. And so we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, but this is, this is in part uh, a manifestation of bad politics. And so the only thing that gives me some optimism is that we can imagine a better kind of politics, a kind of politics that brings to power those who are looking uh, to build bridges instead of uh, unnecessary walls. And so I think uh, this problem is our problem. It's a problem for us as citizens. Uh, if we don't like what we saw in DC, we've got to demand better uh, from our politicians, from our elected officials. 
when we hear the language that undermines democracy, those of us with platforms and those of us in communities must say that this uh, runs afoul of our values, right? That there is no real sense of what it means to be American, right? As we, as an identity scholar, we can think about what the sort of formal or informal rules are that associate with that identity. In this country, uh, being American is really about the values that we hold, right? Uh, and so if one feels patriotic, as many of these folks at the Capitol said they were, then we should be insisting on a kind of politics that reflects the best of our values instead of the worst of them. And I think for the past four years, uh, it's been unfortunate to have at the top of the heap a president who so, uh, is so invested in a politics that doesn't reflect those good values. And the only optimism I have is that with someone like a Joe Biden, a Kamala Harris, and with others ascending to power, we can begin to imagine more quickly a different kind of politics. But again, and very quickly, this won't be easy. It's going to be messy. And I love the language you use. It won't be linear. There are going to be a lot of moments of, of backlash, unfortunately, uh, even alongside those moments where it appears that we're moving forward. Hakeem Jefferson is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Stanford University. You can find his article, Storming the U.S. Capitol Was About Maintaining White Power in America, on our website at ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tularski. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>